Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. May we continue in rejoicing in our God as He shows Himself strong. May we be yielded to Him. As we learned in Bible Hour this morning, may we abide in Him, the true vine, the one in whom we find life, life. And as we look today, this morning, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2, we are reminded yet again to the significant role that the Lord Jesus' life, death and life, His eternal life, plays in our lives as we trust in Him. In this chapter, we come to a beautiful declaration of Jesus as our example. But it's interesting to note the context in which it comes. We're going to look today at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. But really, we have to back up to set the context, to understand what's going on. But before we get the context, let's read these verses. Beginning of verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the bishop, the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Our great shepherd, our bishop, we come to you today wanting to follow you to follow in your steps, to follow the example you have set forth. Lord, I pray that as we consider this passage, we would be challenged that we as your sheep might follow you in the times of prosperity and peace as well as in the times of trouble and poverty that may come. Lord, may in it all we keep looking to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit now would direct us as we look at these words, your words, that your Holy Spirit would work in each individual life in the individual particular ways that only you can do. And so we ask you to do just that. Be with me as I share. Give me the words that you would have me to say. And through it all, may we be drawn closer, closer to you. For you are our God, you are our friend, you are our overseer, our bishop, our shepherd. May we follow you as those who hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Christian suffering. It's not particularly something that we have much experience with, is it? That's not been true in 
many times throughout history. That's not true even in modern times in different parts in the world. We have for so long experienced prosperity in this land. For so long we have experienced peace. We have experienced religious freedom. We have experienced the freedom of conscience. Our government doesn't oppress us in the matter. Our employers do not oppress us in the matters. We have, for the most part, peace. And when we do find those little bits of trouble, the consequences of them and big pictures are relatively small. Relatively. They're still there. They still hurt. They still frustrate us or inconvenience us. But they're relatively small, especially when we compare it to the suffering of Jesus, to his scourgings, to his beatings, to his death. I'd like to share with you a story from Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know if you've ever read this book. It's a rather morbid book. Of course, it's all about martyrs. Although I tell you, some of them didn't actually, some of them did die natural deaths, just so you know, in case it scares you of reading the book. But over the years, I have found much in reading not only of the martyrs recorded in Scripture, but of reading of martyrs as recorded in history and in modern times. Just again to remind you, the word martyr is a Greek word that literally translated means a witness. It's a witness, one who is a witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ and willing even to die for it. That's one reason why some have been recorded by John Fox, who died natural deaths. And the reason is because they were witnesses willing to shed their blood for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'd like to read to you a story of John Huss, a Christian preacher who was martyred in 1415. He was challenged. He was brought before his condemners and condemned. And he was brought out and sentenced to be burned at the stake. And it was when he was brought out, it says that when he was come thither, kneeling down upon his knees and lifting up his eyes unto heaven, he prayed and said certain psalms, and especially the 31st and 51st psalms. And they who stood hard by heard him oftentimes in prayer with a merry and cheerful countenance repeat this verse into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Which thing, when the lay people beheld who stood next to him, they said, What he hath done before we know not, but now we see and hear he doth speak and pray very devoutly and godly. There were a lot of people standing nearby who heard him praying, saw his countenance, who had been caught up in the adventure of the day, not realizing what was exactly taking place. But a certain priest, sitting on horseback in a green gown drawn about with red silk, said, He ought not to be heard because he is an heretic. In the meantime, while John Huss prayed, 
As he bowed his neck backwards to look up into heaven, the crown of paper fell off his head upon the ground. They'd made a crown for him made out of paper to mock him as a heretic as they conceived and perceived him. Then one of the soldiers, taking it up again, said, Let us put it again upon his head that he may be burned with his masters, the devils, whom he hath served. They treated him as if he was a crowned one of Satan, though he was one who preached Christ. When by the commandment of the tormentors he was risen up from the place of his prayer, with a loud voice he cried, Lord Jesus Christ, help me! And that with a constant and patient mind, I may suffer this cruel and enigmous death, whereunto I am condemned for the preaching of thy most holy gospel and word. Then, as before, he declared the cause of his death unto the people, that it was only but for declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the mean season, the hangman stripped him of his garments, and turning his hands behind his back, tied him fast to the stake with ropes that were made wet. And whereas by chance he was turned towards the east, certain cried out that he should not look towards the east, for he is a heretic. So he was turned towards the west. Then was his neck tied with a chain upon the stake, which chain, when he beheld, smiling, he said, that he would willingly receive the same for Jesus Christ's sake, who he knew was bound with a far worse chain. Under his feet they set two faggots, mixing straw with all. And so from the feet up to the chin, he was enclosed round about with wood. And they lit that fire, and it was kindled. And John Huss began to sing with a loud voice, Jesu Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy upon me. And when he began to say the same the third time, the wind drove the flame up so to his face that it choked him. Yet notwithstanding, he moved a while after, by the space of a man might say three times the Lord's Prayer, when all the wood was consumed. Now that day in July, John Huss gave his life. Singing, receiving the chain of bonds with a smile. How? being accused and condemned as a heretic, as being one who is a priest or doing the work of devils. How could? How could he face that with a smile? How could he face that with a song? Well, he gave the answer. He gave the answer when he was first brought out. Did you catch it? The answer that he gave was it says that in a merry and cheerful countenance, he said, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Do those words sound familiar to you? Perhaps they do. Take your Bibles and turn with me back to Acts 
chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, there was a problem in the church. The widows of a certain ethnic group were being neglected. And so the elders, and not wanting to be distracted from the ministry of the word and prayer, asked the people to choose out from among them men of honest report and men full of wisdom and the Holy Ghost, that they may be pointed over this matter. And one man named Stephen was appointed over this matter. My namesake. And Stephen was a deacon. He was the first deacon. But he was also a preacher. And he preached the truth there in Jerusalem to the point where the chief priests and scribes hated him and sought to have him condemned. He was brought before the consul. He was brought before the Sanhedrin. He was put there in the middle of that great circle of 70 men surrounding him, all ready to tear him apart. If you look at the end of chapter 6, verse 15, it says, And all that sat in the consul, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Wait. He's one standing before a vicious crowd who not long before had been a part of crucifying Jesus Christ. And now he stands before them and his countenance, his face, they note is as if they are looking into the face of an angel. How? Well, the high priest, after a series of witnesses have been called to falsely accuse him, asked him how he answers these accusations. And Stephen launches into a sermon. All of chapter 7 is a sermon in which he recounts much of Israel's history and he identifies, you might say, the sacred cows of their false religion as they have built it and in which they have set themselves in opposition to the true God. And when he had finished this, he declares in verse 53 of these people who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. All those standing nearby, those in that consul, it says, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. If you know the rest of the story, his name is Paul, too, and later becomes the Apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. John Huss, with a cheerful countenance, committed his spirit into the hands of God, didn't he? Going back into history, we find Stephen, the first witness, the first martyr of the church to give his life. He too, in the midst of all of this, calling upon God, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But you know, John Huss didn't get it from Stephen. He got it from Jesus. Because Jesus was one who also was falsely accused. Jesus also was one who was said to do the work of devils. Jesus is one who was accused of rebelling against the civil authorities in the time. As one who was supposedly challenging the supreme power of Caesar. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was beaten. He was scourged. It was prophesied of him in Isaiah chapter 52 and 3 that his visage, his body, his appearance was so marred more than any man. The scourging that took place that day with Jesus left him as a dripping mass of blood and flesh unrecognizable as a human being. And then he was nailed to a cross, a tree, the most cruel form of punishment that had been invented, of torture and death. And yet all the while in all of this, Jesus was as a lamb before her shears is dumb, opened not his mouth. Though he was reviled, though he was cursed, he did not return cursing. He did not revile back. He was nailed to a cross, a tree, then hung up on it, hung, hanging from a tree to the Jew, knowing what had been previously throughout Scripture described of those hung on a tree was a sign of curse upon the one hung. And that's exactly what it was. Because as he hung on that cross, he took my sin, my ugly sin upon himself, your sins upon himself. He who did no sin and he died for me, for you, and for the sins of all people in the world throughout all history. In the very last words of Jesus was this. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost.
He gave up his life. He died. There's something special about commending your spirit to God, isn't there? Turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 2. The context of this, to review briefly, this letter is written by Peter, who, by the way, witnessed this with Jesus and most likely witnessed that with Stephen and other such terrible things. God has inspired to write this letter. And just to remind you again, in chapter 2, verse 9, he's writing to a people he describes as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that these people might show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These people he describes in verse 11 as dearly beloved. He is setting a stage that continues through the rest of this book on the topic of suffering. And it's ironic. <laughs> he begins by telling them how you live. May it be honest. May it be a work of beauty to those who behold you and see your life, your conversation. And then he gives two instructions of submission. The first is a submission to civil authority, the ordinances of men and governors and so forth. And then in verse 18, he commands servants to be subject to their masters, and not just the good and gentle, but also the forward, the perverse and the crooked. And then in the midst of this, it's almost as if he's in the middle of this treatise and he knows that there's going to be people who are going to suffer for what he's just admonished, knowing it. And so he gives this little treatise on how to suffer. And it's interesting then because he's not actually done with the submission context and category because when we come right into chapter 3, he deals with wives being in submission, which is really interesting especially dealing with the fact that it's dealing with wives whose husbands are not believers. We have these different aspects of submission, and then we have this aspect of suffering. And it's as if he has to take, and take a break here for a moment and deal with this particularly. Justin, before, let's read this passage here regarding servants to set it in context. Civil authorities is the command to be subject to them in the fear of God. And then in verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? If, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. This is grace with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, 
who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. How many of us want to acknowledge the fact that we've been called to suffer? For herein too, he says, ye were called to follow the footsteps of Jesus. How did he suffer? And how did he die? It tells us here he left us an example. This word here, example, is interesting. The Greek word is also used particularly when describing what a child would copy in writing their letters. So, did you know it's nothing new to have the little dots or the little dashes that shape out the letters, and you take your pen or pencil or quill and you, and you, and you follow the dots, you follow the dashes to your letters? How many of you ever had to do that? Oh, did, did you all have to do that? Yeah, I think we all, at one time, were given an example for us to trace. And it's interesting because sometimes it's there given as one that you trace the outline and then it's left blank and there might be a whole page of blank lines and then you're, not, you're supposed to do it without tracing, right? Well, that particular method of learning to write was described here with this simple word as the example. It was this example that was given for children to trace and to form and shape their letters. Well, we are called to suffer, but we're not left without a way of showing us how. Now, you might say, I'd rather just not deal with suffering at all. I understand. In fact, in our Western world, we're found by other Christians in other parts of the world to have a major part of our theological training missing. There are whole courses that are taught in churches and to pastors. Everyone. Imagine how many people would come if we held a class, special class, and titled it, How to Suffer for Jesus. In America, I don't think it would be very popular. We may not want to go to that class, but we need to. You know how to suffer for Jesus? Well, in 1 Peter, this is actually the textbook, because there's a whole lot here in 1 Peter laying a foundation for us to know how to suffer. In fact, in the New Testament, over in 2 Peter, it says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What that means is that the privilege we have, which by the way, in some parts of the world isn't perceived as a privilege. It's sometimes, it's often perceived by people um, in, in the persecuted world who look back and say it's apathy. It's, it produces apathy. It produces carnality in people because they're never actually challenged. It creates a church that is a mixed multitude of people who say they're Christians but really aren't. Suffering is a refining pot. It's what makes us stronger. And in New Testament perspective, it's presumed that we will suffer. And so you know what? 
we need an example to follow. We need a model set for us. We need to know how to suffer. And we have an example to follow Jesus' steps. We need to spend a lot of time with Jesus, don't we? Abiding with him, as we learned this morning. He is the true vine, knowing him more and more each day so that when we suffer, we have that fellowship with him that we are able to endure as he would endure. You see the first note in verse 22? Who did no sin. Now that can't be said of any of us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But as Christians, we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We're united with Christ and we don't have to sin. You know that, right? We don't have to sin. And so when we look and consider the question of suffering, let's not choose to sin. We have that choice to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, when we do sin, let's not forget 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore that fellowship, to keep on going. Sometimes our adversary, the devil, when we do sin and we read this, we're like, oh, I'm such a failure, just give up on all of this. Oh, please don't. Oh, please don't. Remember, you don't have to sin and then trust in Jesus and rest in him. That ties back to what's previously described here with the servants. Don't suffer. Don't suffer as one who did wrong. Or what's also described over in chapter 4 and verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's business. Those are aspects of suffering that really are not thankworthy. You deserve it. But consider this. Don't be caught up in sin in the midst of suffering. It continues, neither was guile found in his mouth. Guile has to do with how we communicate and has to do with the truth. We need to be very careful in how we handle the truth in the midst and in the threatening of persecution. Jesus didn't have any of it. Let's follow in his steps. Let's follow in his steps. It says in verse 23, who, when he was reviled, reviled, not again. Well, what's it mean to be reviled? Well, it's somebody saying something to you about you, either true or not true, that's just said in a mean way, a really mean way like as if their words are stabbing you. That's a revile. You know what so often we're tempted to do when somebody says something to us, especially if it's false, is to just shoot it right back at them. Be mean right back. Speak meanly back. Harshly. Cruelly. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was reviled. Oh, the lies that were said of him. Oh, oh my, you, you think of the aspect of all that was going on with him, it's just horrific. But no, he, he didn't revile again. When he suffered, and oh, we just recounted some of his suffering, he, he threatened not. 
Perhaps you've heard stories of people who've been mistreated and they respond by threatening and, and cruel words and striking back or causing much trouble. No, Jesus didn't do that. But what did he do? So you see, we have some things that he didn't do. He, he, he didn't sin. He, he didn't continue in guile or deception. He did not revile, and he did not threaten. But what did he do? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Wow. He stood there before the chief priests and scribes, falsely accused before them. They were not righteous judges. They condemned him as a blasphemer and condemned him to death. He was brought to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He stood before him, falsely accused, lies made about him. As one who actually said to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The one who actually was more, um, I don't want to use the patriotic, but he, he, was, he was more supporting of the Roman government than the average Jew. And yet he was falsely accused as, a, as, a tyrant, as, not, as, a, as one who was usurping authority, trying to capture authority. And he was falsely and wrongly judged, unrighteously judged by Pilate. He was sent to Herod, the same thing. You see, he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. There's a rhetorical question in the Old Testament that all of you need to know. Abram asked him, shall the judge of all the earth do right? It's a rhetorical question because it's a declaration. Of course he does. The God who is judge of all the earth shall do right. Described here, he judgeth righteously. And so when you are falsely accused, when you are suffering for, when you're suffering wrongly, you could try to defend yourself, you could try to fight for yourself, but commit yourself to the one who judgeth righteously. The ultimate judge, whom, by the way, the chief priests and scribes are accountable to. Pilate was accountable to, and Herod was accountable to. All, no matter what their positions are, all accountable to the one who judges righteously. And so Jesus, Jesus committed himself to the one who judges righteously. What an example he set for you and for me and for any Christian who is ever suffering. Again, this is parallel down to the end of chapter 4. If you flip, look down again, in chapter 4, it, it's, I, I don't want to preach chapter 4 again, but it's all tied together. And it says here that um, we need to begin in the house of God to be judging. Really, it's really you could say it's a declaration and a challenge to us all that we need to have a, be, be considering what it means to suffer as, as the people of God. And look then at verse 19 as it summarizes that. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful 
creator. There at the end of verse 23, chapter 2, verse 23, I wrote a little CF 419. Ties the book together. The whole book continues. Here it begins into this, and everything from here on down through there all ties together. We commit ourselves unto the one who judgeth righteously. And when we do that, just as John Huss and just as Stephen before him and just as Jesus, we can face death with a smile. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, those men in the Old Testament who were cast in the burning fiery furnace, they understood this truth. They were physically delivered on that day from that burning fiery furnace. But they knew that even if the fire did consume them and destroy them, that they would still be delivered too. Because they were men who had committed themselves as unto a faithful creator, the judge of all the earth who judgeth righteously. There is our example. And then Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in verses 24 and 25, gets really personal. It's almost as if he has, he has taken this little treatise on the topic of suffering and how to suffer, and he's just overwhelmed thinking about Jesus and what Jesus left for us as an example and began to think about why. You know, you and I need to think about this and you and I need to be overwhelmed with this. Jesus, who his own self, bear our sins. Mine and yours, the sins of the whole world. He bore them in his own body on the tree. Keep in mind, he was one who knew no sin. He had done no sin. He had never disobeyed his mom or dad. He had never talked back to his mom and dad. He had never thought an impure thought. He had never told a lie. He was pure and righteous and good and holy and sinless. But yet as he hung there on that cross, he took our sins upon him and as the Son of God infinitely died for all our sins in his own body. He was made a curse hanging on this tree for us so that we wouldn't have to hang on a tree as one cursed. So that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. We are a people who in our life, we find life in sin. But we don't need to live there. We can live in righteousness because we can live in Him because He is one who has healed us. And He's healed us by the stripes He bore for us. I hope that excites you this morning as we consider the table, the Lord's table, the time of communion and fellowship with Christ and remembering in a memorial what Christ did for us and also giving of thanks. We have so much 
to give thanks for. It's incredible how verse 25 just jumps right over the resurrection and presumes it. I oftentimes tell people when you evaluate a gospel track and when you're sharing the gospel, don't miss the resurrection. That's a really important part. The fact that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, is vitally important. And Peter doesn't skip it. He just presumes it. As he goes right on, it says, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You know, in order for Jesus to be the shepherd and bishop of your souls, he had to rise again. And he did rise again. And the question is, are you your own shepherd? Going astray your own way? Or is Jesus your shepherd? Is Jesus the one who's in his steps you follow? The one whose example you follow? Just as a sheep would follow a shepherd and hear his voice and follow. Do we follow him as a shepherd and as the bishop of our souls. He's the one who's watching over us. The word bishop has the idea of being an overseer, one who is orchestrating details and things. Here in this case, for our good. And you might say, wait, wait a minute. He wasn't a very good overseer of John Huss's soul. Or was he? Oh, yes, he was. That's the whole point in all of this, is that no matter what you're facing and no matter what's going on around you and the chaos and the trouble and the struggles, commit yourself to the one who's the faithful creator. Commit yourself here to the one who judgeth righteously. Commit yourself to the one who is the overseer of all things. Commit yourself to your good shepherd, the one who gave his life for you so that you could have life. And even if this temporal life now is taken away, and even violently taken away, you will be delivered as you enter into the very presence of God. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's why Stephen, that's why John Huss, that's why you can face death with peace. Even a horrible, violent, unjust death. Have you committed your soul to the faithful creator? We're going to sing a song this morning, and as we sing, I invite you to rejoice and give thanks for what Jesus has done. And we're going to prepare to have communion. Communion, the bread and cup, the giving of thanks and remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice is something very special, but it is only for Christians. Only Christians ought to partake of it, and what is a Christian? A Christian is one who has believed that Jesus died for his or her sin and that he rose again and has trusted him and only him for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I hope all of you here this morning have become a Christian, or if not, will today. But as we observe this, if you're not a Christian, just quietly pass and let it pass by. But if you are, take and partake and give thanks and rejoice in remembering what Jesus did, not just for others, but for you, for you, and rejoice 
in this time. Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves to you. Truly, you are a faithful and righteous judge. You are the creator. You are our creator. And may we follow you as the overseer, the bishop, the shepherd of our souls. May we trust you and rejoice in you moment by moment that you might be glorified. So we commit ourselves to you now. We give thanks and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.